Your 20 minutes in the morning instead of the 45 is a joy choice because it sets you up to stay consistent, but most importantly, to give you the the juju you need to be your best self today. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 216. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers, to another plantastic episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. I am so over the moon excited about this episode. So glad that I met Dr. Michelle Seeger, who is doing amazing work. Oh, it's so wonderful. I want you to pick up her book, The Joy Choice, and read it. I think it's going to be really helpful, but first listen to this episode. But let me tell you more about Michelle. Michelle is an award-winning researcher at the University of Michigan with almost 30 years studying how to help people adopt healthy behaviors in ways that can survive the complexity and unpredictability of the real world. Michelle's perspective is uniquely comprehensive. For her entire career, she has combined academic research with the real world health coaching to pioneer methods that create sustainable healthy behavior change and which have been adopted to boost patient health, employee health and well being, and gym membership retention. Her first book, No Sweat, is used as a core text in training professionals in health coaching and patient counseling. A sought-after speaker and trainer, Michelle is frequently interviewed in major media outlets like the New York Times, NPR, Prevention, Fast Company, Self, Real Simple, Women's Health, CNN, Newsy, and the Wall Street Journal. And you're just going to love her. She is down to earth. She explains things well. She's so passionate, enthusiastic, and she she's doing work that literally is going to change people's lives. This is really, really important work. So I hope that you stay and listen to this entire episode and my reflections at the end. So we're going to talk about what she does. We talk about a lot of the concepts that she discusses in the book, like the motivation bubble, whether it's willpower and self-control that we lack that's leading to us not being able to sustain our habits. We talk about whether weight loss should be our motivation to change our habits or to adopt new habits. We talk about the different habit personalities, the habiters and the unhabiters. We talk about the complexity of our brains, our past emotions, memories, thoughts, and feelings, and how they influence our choices. And we talk about decision disruptors and her trap acronym. And then we talk about the joy choice solution, what that is, how to apply it, how to use it in your life. But really, I think this is going to be so helpful for you. These may be new concepts. Hopefully they're not completely new concepts because they are things that I've talked about 
in the podcast before, but I love how Dr. Seeger is able to take this information and put it into an algorithm for us, a nice concept for us to be able to apply on a day-to-day basis to develop these habits that we can sustain, that we can be more consistent with in our lifetime. So I appreciate you being here. Welcome to all the new listeners. I hope you love this episode. And now let us welcome Dr. Michelle Seeger. Dr. Michelle Seeger, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thanks for having me. I love the name of your show. (laughs) Thank you. Well, your book, The Joy Choice, is really great. And I am so excited to talk to you about this because this is my this is my game. I love talking about this topic and my listeners love hearing about it. And there's so many parts of your book that I was like, yes, yes, yes. I just love what you have to say. But before we get into some of the topics you talk about in your book, on your website, you describe yourself as a sustainability scientist, which sounds amazing. What is that? And how did you get into this work? Sure. So I refer to myself as a sustainable behavior change scientist because I study how to create changes in behavior that can be sustained over time. And, you know, I don't use that term lightly because I've been researching how to create sustainable, healthy behaviors for almost 30 years, both through my academic research and as a health coach myself. Um, I got into it when my my first kind of rigorous study as a master's student in kinesiology Um, showed me that while cancer survivors, about four years after treatment, so they were, you know, busy people living normal lives, that these participants who committed to our study for about 12 weeks exercising regularly according to our protocol, once our study ended, almost everyone stopped. And I thought, what? Why would you stop? You know, our, our measures show that you improved, um, in some psychological outcomes and they basically said to me, Michelle, we're, we're busy. We have to live our lives. We've got kids and we're parents and we work and we have aging parents that we have to help, you know, with their medications and their technology and their doctor's appointments. And what became clear to me, and this was in February of 1994 when we held these focus groups, um, what became very clear to me was that while they had felt comfortable committing to us for our research, they didn't feel comfortable committing to their own self-care through regular physical activity. And it was that light bulb that said, this is a real problem in our culture if people who faced a life-threatening illness don't feel comfortable or have the skills to prioritize their own self-care. This is my problem and I'm gonna solve it. So everything I've been doing since that time has been in service of how do I help People in the real world, not in the ivory tower, but people who are living busy lives, parenting and working and children, stick with a behavior, complex behavior like physical activity or healthy eating over time. I love it. I love it because that is the reality, right? I mean, it's so funny that we immerse ourselves in this, even as professionals ourselves, right? As physicians, as health coaches, we have this expectation that whenever you are going to start a habit, 
everything around you is just going to make it easy and that it should just be easy. And really the only barrier you should have is just wanting to do it. Just have the self-discipline, have the willpower, just do it. But the reality is, especially as time goes on, that life is complex and it's getting more and more and more complex. And I'm not at that stage yet. Thankfully, my parents are both healthy, but my grandparents are having health problems. And so I'm doing that same thing of forgetting the reality every every day. I'm like, mom, are you doing your resistance training? Are you doing your walking while she's here dealing with my grandfather who has dementia and is needing care around the clock? So I'm like, wow, that is the reality of the world that we're in. So how do we make, make it so that we can develop sustainable habits in the reality of the situation? So thank you for that. So tell me about the motivation bubble. What is that? The motivation bubble is a concept I came up with um, many years ago. Actually, in the process of speaking to the media about my first book, um, No Sweat, to explain what happens. Here's, I mean, I, I think your listeners, because most people resonate with this. Here's what happens. It's almost swimsuit season. There's a wedding coming up or a reunion. Or our doctors admonish us that we need to lose the weight that they've been talking to us about um, and maybe we feel shame about or even maybe we've been shamed about for so many years. We decide, this time I'm going to do it. I'm full of motivation and commitment and this bubble is overinflated because we're so inspired and committed, but it's in a completely different orbit as the real life we live on a daily basis. We may join a gym or get a Peloton bike or start a new eating plan, but it's like different than and outside of what the the mundane things we have to do every day because we're so excited. But then what happens is within a couple weeks, we get a call from our our parents to help them with something, or our kid, we, we were about to go for a walk and the school calls and says, you need to pick up your child, or we're about to go outside and our dog pukes on our new rug and we, it takes us 30 minutes to clean up, whatever it is, and our bubble bursts through that mundane thing, and then we feel like failures and we stop. And so the motivation bubble is basically how we've learned to approach making a change in our eating or exercise um, behaviors, but it sets us up to start and stop and start and stop, but not, and here's the key word again, but not sustain. Yes. Yeah. That's the key is sustainability. Consistency is always going to be better than perfection or this all or nothing approach. So- In your book, these terms like willpower, self-control come up. I also think in my mind, another word that we use often is discipline. Just have the self-discipline and do it. Are these things to blame for not being able to sustain healthy habits? Are we lacking in willpower? So I think I, I refer to those things. It's not that we don't need to make choices. See, this is where the language we use is so important and we need to be precise so that our minds know exactly what's happening. Willpowered, exerting self-discipline and if we can't do it, it's our fault. That is part, that is a passe 
part of what I call the old story of behavior change. And it's really the dominant narrative that's been in our culture and in healthcare and in the fitness industry. It's really most places. And unfortunately, that narrative emphasizes that we need to have self-control. But the, and that sets most people up to fail. Now, there are some people, and my husband is one of them. So I live with someone who has an incredible amount of discipline and self-control. But guess what? He that's true of him from a personality perspective. And he, you know, he he brings that to every aspect of his life. We do have personality differences. We do have different roles. Like I am the one in our family. Now my husband is very involved in parenting, but I am the one who is responsible for the logistics of our son's life. The school logistics, the social logistics, the driving logistics. Well, that adds this whole level of rigmarole to an un unanticipated that throws um, curveballs in my life that means it influences whether I can follow through on a healthy meal I may have planned to cook. And so the new story of behavior change, um, which we need, is based on not convention, not popular passe ideas like we need willpower to be successful or even that we need to form automatic habits and offload our decisions so that we don't have to think about them. Well, few people have the personality and life context to actually succeed with that approach. We need approaches that, that can actually survive in the real world. And so um, one of the things that I think is really important is using precise language. And, you know, habit is a very popular term. And... I, it's, it, it can be used very specifically to talk about automatic habits that like my husband has, his alarm goes off, he sleeps in his clothes so that he doesn't have to think and just goes downstairs to exercise. Most people can't do that. So if, and, and then habits are used to just things we do regularly, which is very vague. I think the language we should be using should be we should be talking about the choices and decisions we make because that in the moment when we're at that restaurant or that party or um we had planned to go exercise and you know the couch and netflix is calling us it's about the decision we make in those moments right now and now and now so let's use language that actually describes what we need to do to become consistent. And again, that word you used is, that's what we're talking about. It's consistency. It's not perfection. Yeah. Ugh, I love that so much. And one of the questions I was going to ask you is to talk a little bit more about the differences in people, because until I read this in your book, honestly, I did it. I guess I just didn't think that that was the case, that there are different personalities when it comes to adopting and forming habits because I'm an automatic habit person. Yes. I'm the person, I already got up and did my exercise and got yes. in the sauna and did all my stuff this morning. And my husband is not, but I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. So I think that some of it has to do with priorities too, because I know for me, exercise is an essential for my mental health. I love it. It feels good. It's a priority. Sleeping, exercise, my my healthcare, my well-being is is a priority. But you know what's not a priority for me is cleaning the house. Mm -hmm. My husband would like that to be the opposite. <laughs> so, that's not a habit for me like 
just regularly cleaning and picking up. So I'm kind of messy. My husband has usually not been the kind of person that automatically can get into the exercise habit, but he is tidy and cleans the house until recently where he's prioritized his exercise and done all that. And then suddenly for the first time in his life, he's realizing that the laundry is going unfolded. And I'm like, see, that's what happens. We have to make choices. And when my choice is like, this is not a priority, a little bit of a messy house is not that big of a deal to me. I would rather feel good. I would rather get have my energy and feel, you know, alive and mentally sharp than to spend every single second tidying everything up. So, it I think some of us are able to in the moment make those choices and for some people maybe it might seem selfish, maybe I don't know, but tell me a little bit about these differences. You call it a habiter and an unhabiter, I think in your book. Yeah. These different personality types. Now, so just to be clear, those are terms I made up to get people, to give people a fun window into critically thinking like, who am I and what what have I been trying to do and has it worked over many years or decades? So I came up with this concept of habiter versus unhabiter. And of course, I modeled it after clients, but also my own life. Like you, you know, um, my, I just, got a, you know, a little bit of a, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. My husband let me know yesterday that he, you know, why, why are the dishes in the sink before, you know, we're cooking dinner. And like you, I'm a little, I'm comfortable having a, a messy house, although it's not my preference. I do it. You're right about priorities. And I'm going to get back to the habiter versus unhabiter, but that notion is really crucial. So I want to speak to that first. People make People prioritize what brings value to them and what they value. And so you are very clear. And I love the fact that you didn't say weight loss and why you value it because weight loss in a way poisons um, um, so more, more people than not's motivation for changing their eating in healthy ways and becoming more physically active. The research the you know the mounting and emerging research is really suggesting that when we learn to value um, eating in certain intentional eating and exercise for the ways it helps us feel for the ways it helps us enhance our daily well being, now that's worth prioritizing. In contrast, if we're trying to exercise because we've got to lose those twenty pounds and our doctor's mad at us or whatever it is. Who's going to make time for that? The littlest thing is going to get in the way. So our reasons, our primary reason, and I actually, um, I talk about this toward the end of the book um, in the Choose Joy chapter, we need to reframe the purpose for healthy living, not as a way to fit norms and, and fulfill other people's expectations of us, but to just feel our best. And believe it or not, when you make the decision to do that, you can it's it can be a very easy click in motivation. Okay, having do you want to react to that before I get to your other question? Yes, thank you. Ah, uh, because literally you are speaking my love language here. I mean, I have been trying to say this myself. I don't have as much background experience as you, but I've realized this through my own personal journey. I'm also a health coach that it derails people when we're so focused on a certain size or weight. 
And I've had this experience where my clients are doing so amazing and they're just like, I feel so good. This is the best I've felt in my life. I'm doing all this stuff. And then their face drops and I'm like, well, what's wrong? And they're like, I just feel like I need to lose 20 more pounds. And then that motivation just gets sucked from them because they redirected their energy. And I'm like, why? Why do you need to lose 20 more pounds? Oh, because I'm at an unhealthy weight. And so I feel like as a health profession too, I I want to advocate to more physicians that I really encourage them to think differently about this because when we are also spreading that weight stigma, that size bias in medicine, we are perpetuating this fixation on body size, which redirects people away from the sustainability. It's you... You hit a bullseye right there. That is, that is the point. And you know, as you know, it's very hard to change things in healthcare. And you know, this is one of the things that I'm also getting really interested in: is how can we create, how can we help clinicians understand that when they focus on weight and BMI instead of how patients feel, that they're actually miss. They're and this is not wishful thinking this is not this is what the research is suggesting that you know the focus to adopt exercise and healthy eating to lose weight that is not an evidence-based approach it's just a conventional approach so you know that's you know and in in healthcare we're supposed to be doing things that are evidence-based so i mean i think the good news is is that more and more research is going to come out even though it's so hard to change you know, the conversation and policy and practices in healthcare. I think we just need more people showing clinicians and health systems the data. Like when people are doing research showing when you teach people intuitive eating versus a more formal restrictive approach, this is what happens. Um, but the other thing that, well, anyway, I don't want to go in, I, I won't go into that more, but you you touched on something that I'm very interested in, in very much professionally too, but I want to get back to your habiter versus unhabiter. Again, I made this up to be fun so that we could talk to our spouses and our friends and say, are you a habiter or unhabiter? Of course, I have a list of questions in the book to help people assess what they are, but here's the deal. It's not there, what we need in the behavior change research that is starting to happen it's, as we become more sophisticated is it's like a precision type of behavior change. And what that means is what are your personality characteristics and, and what, what are the implications of whether you're a super disciplined person? Well, you are probably going to be more successful creating a type of a program, whether it's eating or exercise, that is rigid and you know and knowing this i do it then you know i make sure i i make sure that nothing's going to get in the way and that works for you now the research on eating for example suggests now again it works for my husband it doesn't work for me and i've been you know like you i've been coaching people for a long time and it it doesn't work for most of the people that i've come across and even my friends in my life um So the research suggests, for example, with eating, that when people go to a special occasion or come to the weekend who are following a certain type of eating plan and may have lost weight, that being flexible with their plan and not trying to rigidly stick to it, that that is a better predictor of actually 
sustaining and being more consistent with the plan that is associated with their weight loss maintenance than, than trying to rigidly follow the plan. And let's just unpack why that might be. Here we are. It's the weekend and our, we're at a, a, a cookout. And there's wonderful food that we rarely eat. So we can go, okay, I've got to stick to the plan. I've got to stick to the plan. What does that do? It means eventually, most likely, most of us succumb to the temptation and rebel. Screw this. I want to participate in this family gathering or neighborhood celebration. And instead of doing something in moderation, which we might do if we were like, you know what, this is a special occasion. And while I don't want to go crazy because I don't want to completely derail everything, I do want to, I am a whole person. I do want to participate in the celebration that's happening. So I am going to, even though I don't eat hamburgers, I'm going to eat a third or a half of a hamburger or split a hamburger with someone. Yes, it's off my plan, but it's going to let me feel like I'm giving to myself. I'm taking care of myself. So we look at our eating plan as a part of the context of our full set of needs. And yes, eating in a certain way is part of our full set of needs, but so is celebrating with our family and friends. And we haven't been taught to approach changes in our eating or, again, exercise. I can't get to the gym for the class that I signed up for. Shoot, I'm not going to do anything. All or nothing thinking with eating and exercise is the core derailer. It's, it's, it's a dragon in our brain. And the good news is, again, the science shows that that's not what leads to long-term success for most people. It's the alternative, which is, of course, what I call the joy choice. I love it. You know what I think is so interesting is that we get so used to certain ways of thinking about things. What adventures have you been having this summer? So my family and I recently went camping in a beautiful location here in the Pacific Northwest. And the reason we were camping is because my oldest son and my husband have been doing segments of the famous long distance hiking trail called the Pacific Crest Trail. It spans from Southern California all the way to British Columbia, but my husband wants to complete all the Washington state portions before my son graduates from high school. We're so lucky to live in such a beautiful part of the country with so much access to outdoor activities in all of the seasons. I myself am definitely not a hardcore hiker, but I love being in nature and trying new things. And this camping trip, I made sure to take a bottle of Bernie Wild's adventure sauce with us. On this camping trip, a couple of the meals that I made were veggie sandwiches and we also had veggie burgers and Bernie's complements it in so many different ways. If you love adventure too, then I have a sauce for you. It's called Bernie Wild's Adventure Sauce and you have good reason to grab yourself a bottle or two right now. My listeners get 20% off their first order of $20 or more and free shipping. Just use the code Dr. Yami, D-R-Y-A-M-I. Follow the link in the show notes or go to berniewilds.com and go get yourself a couple of bottles of Bernie Wild's Adventure Sauce right now. You're going to get 20% off and free shipping by using the code Dr. Yami. I hope you love it and you take it on your next adventure. 
culturally that yes. sometimes something so simple can seem incredibly innovative, right? Like yes. why did I ever think about it? And I think about how as a parent, I follow teachers and educators online that help me think of different ways of saying things like scripts and things like that, that have really helped me how to communicate with my children. And I've started to do the same thing with coaching, trying to help people think about this flexibility. Okay. You're going to go out, you're going to be at this thing. This stuff is going to be present. You're probably going to want to eat some. What are the different choices you could make? It's not just you don't eat it or, you know, like, and, and I think that what I've seen often, especially this example that you had in your book, I loved it. The lady that had been doing really well on her diet for like three months. And then there was a friend who baked this amazing cake and you even wrote in the description that she accepted a large piece of cake and she ate the whole thing because she felt bad because her you know, friend had made the cake. But nobody's taught us it's okay to have a small piece of cake. <laughs> it's right. okay to That's have a right. couple of bites. It's That's okay right. to say, I'll have it later. Like we don't, right. it's like, it's like the algorithm is not, the algorithm just says yes or no. And if we say yes, it's going to be the whole entire thing. So I almost think that people need permission to be flexible. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Like, it's almost yes. like we feel like we can't be flexible. It's either I'm not going to do it or I'm going to binge. Yes. No, your permission is the key word. Um, people do need permission because, you know, you talked about how hard it is to change people. Like you said, something so simple and common sense seems innovative. It's that's that's where we're at right now in society that having a small piece of cake is like innovative. And guess what? It is because people and it, to no fault of people to no fault of the system. It's the way our system is the way healthcare, it's the way research, it's the way, it's the way things have evolved. And fortunately, there are more progressive things happening that will eventually turn this around 180 degrees. We're far from that now. But people, we've been socialized, educated, indoctrinated, literally brainwashed to believe that we got to eat the whole cake or nothing. And then that tension is a is a lose-lose because it it our brains um remember the last time we had that delicious piece of cake and we feel so tempted by that and our brains remember how good it felt to participate in the celebration and then we're like i can't but i can't but i can't and then our brains go we're motivated the human nature research shows is to rebel when our liberty is taken away. And so if we don't have liberty and freedom to eat that darn piece of cake, screw you, diet. I'm having that piece of cake. And that's why you said it's it's not, it's all or nothing. And instead of it being like, you know what? I can manage this. This is a choice point. I call these choice points. When we're challenged, this is a choice point. And instead of bringing rigidity and all or nothing thinking and high stakes, it's like, this is a choice point. There are every day, almost every day, brings so many choice points. And so the task isn't to do it right all the time and hit a bullseye all the time. It's to understand like we do in every other area of our life. Like you said, parenting, guess what? Parenting books, especially, um, Tina um, and, 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 and uh, Dan, their books on parenting, ha 
informed my, my thinking about parenting and how to communicate and being flexible in the way the brain works. And that informed how I thought about behavior change. I mean, we need to learn from all areas of our life. Think about if we brought the all or nothing thinking that we bring to eating and exercise to parenting. Let's, let's just play a, a, a brain experiment here. So we're cooking, we put the meal in front of our families and our children decide they're not gonna eat the healthy vegetables we made. If we were bringing all or nothing thinking to um, this situation, we would not let them eat anything and potentially starve them for a week because they didn't eat their vegetables. That's the plan. Or our dentist calls the day before and tells us we're so sorry, but we have to reschedule the appointment that we had with you tomorrow. We don't fire our dentist. We know that in all other areas of our lives, we have to be flexible and go with the flow. Yet when it comes to eating and exercise, we believe we have to be robotic, perfect robots. And, and that really gets in the way of most people. And it's very unkind. It's such an unkind way to treat ourselves with eating and exercise. Yes, absolutely. And it's so complicated because we have multiple layers of shame and guilt associated with our eating choices because I think deep down inside a lot of us have this little fantasy world where we're like raw vegan skinny influencers who only want to eat kale and you know, cake is not even attractive because it's like, you know, like we just want this high moral ground of like perfect quote, perfect food, because there's no perfect food, or I'm quoting that. Um, so you say in your book, whether we realize it or not, this world of emotions and memories, thoughts and feelings influences how we interact with people, events, and tasks we encounter in daily life, and the choices we make, including the choices we make about eating and exercise. So talk a little bit more about the complexity of what's going on in our brains, including all of these things we've been taught about what's good foods or bad foods or who's, you know, going to be the best at this or whatever. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so in the temptation chapter, which I think you're referring to, I featured two new, you know, emerging theories that are about, one is about exercise and one is about eating. And we need theories about each of these behaviors because you know, in order to really understand how choice making works when it comes to eating or exercise and the role of desire and temptation and how you make choices in that context, we we need specificity, right? Now, what what but it turns out there's a lot of overlap in term in terms of what we bring to the moment of choice of eating and exercise and that's you know, our past experiences. So, you know, Esther Pappies and colleagues, which is the theory um, that I feature for eating in, in that chapter, you know, they talk about the full set of experiences that have been embedded in our brain, not just the taste of the cake the last time we ate it, but the the texture of it is in, like embedded in parts of our brain and the social experience of it and the meaning it has for us. And so when we come to that choice point about the cake, the memories, and it's a very complex set of memories, is right there with us. So it's not really the cake in front of us that we're tempted by. And I think that's a really empowering idea. It's our past experiences and past memories of the cake. 
And when we are aware of that, we can bring that attention, you know, just like, um, just like Dan Siegel says, name it to tame it. Wow, this cake is really calling my name, but it's actually my past experiences with my cake. And what do I want to do right now? What do I want to do with the cake? You know, do I want to have some of it? Do I want to split it with someone? Is there an alternative that I just would prefer to have today? Do I touch and touch base with myself? I don't feel like the cake, really, huh? You know, we need to learn to touch base with ourselves. It's not about, and that's where the good and bad really gets in the way, because good and bad is a false dichotomy, and it sets our brains up to rebel and succumb to the seduction instead of feeling like we're in charge. So that's an example of how, and it's true with exercise too, you know, when we come to a point where we had planned to go on a, I tell a story um, about coming to the point of running and a commitment with a partner and, you know, um, the, the, the fellow in the relationship did not want to, he realized, I know I committed to doing this run with my partner, but I don't really feel like doing it. And so he also, you know, I think he brought, I'm trying to remember the exact, the specifics, but the idea is that if we had negative experiences in PE or shame at the gym or whatever it is, we're bringing all that. that that's what Kurt Lewin calls our life space. We are bringing our full set of experiences and beliefs to this moment of choice. And here's the, this is where precision comes back again. If we are not aware, if we don't know that updated knowledge about how, what we're bringing to each choice point, then those things have control over us. But if we understand, oh my gosh, I'm bringing that shame from PE to this moment right now when I'm 56, then we can say, name it to tame it. It's, it's, I use that, it's from Dan Siegel, that quote, name it to tame it. In our brain, when we name a challenge or we name what's going on, it gives us more cognitive control over it, um, which is really powerful. And I use it in my own life with things outside of eating and exercise. Michelle, you are stressed out. Why? Name it to tame it. So... Yeah. Uh, And, you know, it, it requires time and practice too. And I, my listeners know that I dieted for decades, <laughs> struggled with disordered eating, and there's still layers that I'm uncovering sometimes in my eating behaviors. And I'm just like, why am I doing that? And I realize that there's still some choices I make even now that are rooted in shame and, or that I might still feel like a twinge of shame after I make a certain decision in my eating sometimes. And so it, it can take time and patience, but that openness and curiosity, I know you use the word curiosity a lot throughout your book too. I think that's really important to be curious and to go through it with time and patience one step at a time, especially for some of us who spent so many years of our lives since I was nine, you know, like little, my brain was like literally trained in this good or bad dichotomy about food. And so it just, it can take time to uncover that and realize that it's complex in there. So be patient with yourself, be gentle with yourself, have compassion with yourself with those things. Yes. And you know, listening to your show where you talk about these issues is one way that your um, audience helps 
retrain their brain because when they hear um, new narratives that and listen to them and think about them, that is part of this process. And you're right. When you've been, when your brain has been socialized to think a certain way for many years or decades, just like it took you all that time, it doesn't necessarily have to take the same number of years, but it is a process and people do need to be compassionate with themselves. Yes. Tell me a little bit about decision disruptors. What are those? Well, that is when I was talking earlier about temptation, those I've identified four core decision disruptors in my coaching with people that I write about. And um, I use science and coaching stories to help explain it. So we've already established that using precise terms that are going to help us make the most adaptive decisions, that's what we're talking about. Decisions and choices, okay? For those of us who are not habiters, and again, you are, it sounds like you are a habiter. You're getting up in the morning. You're not really making a conscious choice. You've set up your system to have a frictionless exercise experience, which is what my husband does. But for those of us who don't or don't want to or can't do it that way, we need to make conscious choices day in and day out. And that may sound laborious, but it doesn't have to be. What we have to understand is what are the types of think- thoughts, beliefs, narratives, self-talk that are going to distract us and disrupt our decisions at these moments of choice. And I call them temptation, which we've already talked about, so I'm not going to talk about that again. And also I've talked about rebellion. Rebellion is this thing where we're at this choice point, let's use go back to the cake example, and we'd be like, that's bad, that's not my plan, that's bad, I can't have it. And rebellion is the innate human um, motivation to reclaim our freedom. And that is a very common experience. And again, that is not something I made up. That's what research suggests happens. It's called reactance. Then the next one is accommodation. And you hinted at this with your um, recalling the story of my client who was following this wonderful plan. She felt great. She wasn't tempted. She wasn't rebelling because she owned her eating plan. She, she didn't feel like having the cake. She didn't want it. But she wanted to please her friend and make her friend feel tended to and cared for. And that's accommodation. And it's not, we do want to take care of the people and tend to their needs. So this isn't about sometimes. This is about when we always accommodate the needs of others and our self-care just goes down to the bottom. And with eating, you already told the story. She ate the full piece of cake to take care of her friend and felt terrible afterwards and put her in a spiral. It derailed her on so many levels. Um, And the other example is with, with exercise. And it's like, you know, and I think many of us struggle with this too. I mean, people might think I don't struggle with these issues. I struggle with these issues. You know, I want to get my inbox down as far as possible but I want to take my walk and my walk is calling. And there is a constant tension. Like, what do I do today? Do I take that 60 minute walk that I want to take? Um, or do I not take the walk? That's black and white thinking. But so many people come to this choice with all or nothing thinking and say, I'm so far behind in my work. I just have to, I have to just finish the work that I'm doing instead of making, picking a joy choice, which is okay. 
I really do have some, I'm really, I just got back from 4th of July. I really do have 250 emails that I'm behind and that I really need to get to. That doesn't mean I don't take any walk. It means maybe I take a five or 10 minute walk so that I'm doing something instead of nothing. And that's where we bring the flexibility and help us overcome the accommodation one, which leads into the fourth disruptor, which is perfection. And we've talked a lot about that already. And I just modeled if the perfection is it's got to be 60 minutes or it's not worth doing. And again, we've been socialized to have this belief system. Unfortunately, this all or nothing thinking is a cognitive bias that gets us to most often choose nothing. And that's why we need a new narrative that retrains our brain how to think about this. I love that. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to. And they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you wanna give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens, and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing! Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. 
It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you wanna join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. And I love how you're able to formally break it down to help us think of these different situations. I am definitely not an accommodator. So <laughs> as you can see, especially when my husband wants me to clean the house, but I have a very strong rebel inside of me. So that is where my disordered eating just really okay. just took a turn, but I'm so grateful that I've never ever associated exercise with weight loss. So exercise was, has never been like, I'm doing this to lose weight. And so it never got to that point where I stopped exercising because I was rebelling against this forced, you know, desire to do something to change my body, but for food, definitely. And it was one of those things that I had to learn how to drop all of those rules so that that rebellious side of me could calm down and feel taken, you know, that inner part of me could feel taken care of and safe instead of threatened by these rules. So I think breaking them down, people can kind of see, oh yeah, that sounds like me. That's where I fall off my plan is when I start doing this or when I get really, really rigid, that's when I fall off my plan, you know? And that's why this, this gets back to precision. If people are really name, being able to see and name what's truly going on, not like I don't have willpower, I really want the cake, when they're able to really understand, oh, I'm feeling temptation and this is what this is about in my brain or I'm noticing I'm feeling rebellion. When we can be very precise, that's when we're able to say, do I really want to do that? Or, oh, just I see you and I'm going to I'm going to be able to work and be flexible with this. And and, you know, that's why I created a quiz on my website to help people identify what are their biggest decision traps in temptation, rebellion, accommodation, perfection. Guess what that's the acronym is? Trap. Yes. Because that's what traps our choices in the moment are these distractions and disruptions. I love it. Oh, that's so beautiful. And yeah, just like we were talking about earlier, giving people permission to be flexible, I think we do have this in our minds. And you even related a story about another professional who said, we can't tell people they can be flexible because then they're not going to do the full amount. And you were like, is that working for you? Let's see. Let's look at the reality around us. <laughs> How many people are doing the recommended amount? And so we think that if we don't get that full 60 minutes, then we should not do anything. But I've also discovered with exercise for myself, because for me, my motivation for exercise is just, I want to get that that zing of energy and get that blood flow to my brain and feel awake and alert. Even if I just do 10 minutes, it's, I got it, you know? So I don't need to go. My goal is to try to get 45 minutes, but like today I had to get up super early so that we could have this talk today. And I was like, I can do 20 minutes. I felt great. I got my sweat on. I feel I can check my box. I got that accomplished today. So it's okay to do some, like, Try it out, experiment with it. You know, like if you go to the party and you want to get some veggies, but you also want to get 
you know, half of the dessert or whatever, it's okay. Some is better than none. You don't have to go all or nothing. And I think, you know, I was giving a talk recently about my book at the University of Texas and a professor, a very esteemed professor said to me, Michelle, I'm going to push back a little bit. Do we really need to teach people that something is better than nothing? And the answer is not only yes, because you and I've spent a lot of time talking about that today. We have to do more than that. And and I, I think I want to make sure that we get to that more. The more is... It's not just something is better than nothing. It's that it's a joy choice. And why is it a joy? I want to talk about why it's a joy choice. Because we need to be inspired to do that. It's not, you know, it's it's very, it's logical brain. We get stuck on, you know, yes, it's very logical. It makes sense to tell people something is better than nothing. But we know that people don't make their choices out of a logical brain. They make it out of the emotional brain. So how can we make that something really valuable to people? And so I, I named it the joy choice because it, it helps us be consistent. That's what the goal is. We've already established that. It's not perfection. It's not doing exactly the same thing. It's staying on the path of lasting change, of sustainable change. And that is not perfection for most of us. It's consistency. So that means success. And that's a joy, right? But the other thing it does. It doesn't just help us be consistent. It actually helps us take care of ourselves. And when we take better care of ourselves, we have that much more energy and enthusiasm for the people and projects that are most meaningful to us, that bring us joy. So your 20 minutes in the morning instead of the 45 is a joy choice because it sets you up to stay consistent but most importantly, to give you the, the juju you need to be your best self today. Yes, yes. I love that because I've also been talking about redirecting people away from some of these external, you know, measures of success more to an intrinsic internal, what makes you feel good. And I love how you called it the joy choice solution. So tell us a little bit more about that and how, how can people start to apply that to their lives? Sure. Um, and again, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if your listeners are interested in this piece, but I want to say it cause I, it's, it, it, it was an important part of why I call it the joy choice you know, as a behavioral scientist, I inform my the programs and approaches and strategies I come up with from a wide body of science, my own, but also that of others, right, across many areas. But I also have learned from marketing and branding. And what we know about branding is that we need to associate products and services um, with specific perceptions and expectations and experiences. So how does that, what does it have to do with physical activity and exercise? We need to brand the decision to be flexible in a way that's going to make us feel positive and inspired by it. So that's why I call it the joy choice. Um, the joy choice reflects the new story, the solution and the new story of behavior change, the protagonist, which is flexible thinking and um, which is a part of, and I won't go into too much detail, but which is a part of our three primary executive functions. You know, we have this innate brain system that is set up 
to help us think creatively and to pivot when we need to, but we haven't been taught that it's there and we haven't been given the, the right terms, the precise terms and ways of thinking so that we can adequately support it. And that's what the joy choice does. And I came up with the decision tool to actually help people operationalize or use the joy choice in a way that um, can support each of these three functions. So the, the decision tool, of course, it's got to be fun. It's got to be related to bubbles and it's <laughs> pop. We, it needs to be easy to remember so we don't pull too much and call, ask our working memory to do too much. So pop is the acronym. And what do we do when we pop? We come to a challenging point. And let's just, for the sake of a, an easy story, let's go back to that chocolate cake. I'm at this choice point. My friend is offering it to me. Okay, let me, it's challenging. I know it's challenging. Let's pop the plan, which is, not doing anything and following our plan rigidly because we know that doesn't work for most people. Pop, I'm going to pause. I'm going to take a couple of deep breaths to just ground myself. And then I'm going to name in this pause, ooh, accommodation is staring me down or rebellion is staring me down. Just name it. Then it's time for the next step. Let's harness our attention because we know the research suggests that if we're more flexible and come up with alternatives, we're more likely to stay consistent and we're more likely to be happy in that moment, really, frankly. So, oh, and pop, we open up our options and we play with the possibilities. What else are, is there? Half a cake, split the cake. Tell, explain to your friend that you've been feeling amazing on your new plan and to celebrate the event, you're going to have whatever else is there, or you bring something anticipating that this is going to happen. And so you can explain what's going on. There's alternatives out there or, or you eat the whole piece of cake, taking ownership of that choice and saying, you know what, tonight I'm going to have a really light dinner because that's going to help me feel good. That's going to help me feel like I participated, had the cake that I truly wanted but also taking care of the eating plan that I feel really good about. And then the final part of pop is pick the joy choice. And the joy choice is the perfect, imperfect option that lets you do something instead of nothing. So that's how people can operationalize. And, and, and to help people memorize pop, they can make a contact in their phone. You know, so it, like you said, it takes time to learn new things. And like anything else, it takes time and practice. But when people start practicing, coming up with alternatives and maybe even asking their kids, can you help me generate alternatives right now? This is really hard for me. It can be a family activity and you can model flexible thinking, which will then teach your kids what the science shows is most going to lead to consistent choice making. Yes. And it does work. It really does. And I think you have to be open to it. Try it out. Try it on for size. See how it works for you and for your life. But yeah, I'm a big believer in this. And I love your approach. I love how you make it fun with the bubbles. And you know, the bubbles work in so many different ways because you even think of like a thought bubble above your head. Okay, there's this option, there's this option, there's this option, you know? And then which one is gonna work for me right now at this moment, this time in my life with this situation going on? So that's really great. I wanted to ask you, in, in the book, you're talking about starting habits, sustaining habits, 
But there is a difference between starting habits and maybe stopping undesirable habits. Can you talk a little bit about, is there a different approach for this? Can you use the same kind of thing? Or do you have to do something completely different to stop a habit that you want to stop? So that's a great question. And most of my work has been about how do you start and integrate and sustain the positive behaviors that you want to maintain. Um, Stopping something that you don't want to maintain is a completely different process. And and I do talk a little bit about it, but there's some really exciting research um, by Judson Brewer, who's at Brown University. And I highly recommend his book, Unwinding Anxiety. Now, it's about anxiety, but he also talks about how his habit-breaking technique um, that he's used with smoking cessation and with that he's worked with with craving and eating, how it can be applied to anxiety and all of these behaviors. And it, it's a different process. And, and he's a neuroscientist, so he explains in, in fun detail um, how we can use our attention and mindfulness. It, it, it's We're still using attention and mindfulness. We still have to be present in the moment, which is a something we have to learn and practice. It doesn't come easily um, at first to help our brains recalculate the value, the full value of our choices. So going back to the cake example, um, the full value of eating that cake might be let's just make this up that well it happened to my client she felt like she didn't align with her values she felt like she ate too much and she felt over full and uncomfortable and disappointed herself and so he what he would say and you know what we talk about in coaching but he's a neuroscientist so this makes it really compelling is that he would say to bring curiosity to those experiences and say hmm like, let's notice not just the taste of the cake and the feeling of the cake going down, but let's really notice how it feels in our gut. And let's really notice our energy level after that and how we feel about ourselves. And through going through that process many times, it literally helps our brain recalculate the value of that choice so that not making it becomes much more effortless because you've retrained your brain. And I mean, but you can see it's a different process, though they're completely synergistic. Absolutely. There's going to be some skills that will cross over. And especially that mindfulness, tuning into your body, feeling those sensations, being aware of your thoughts, your feelings. So there's going to be some skills you use for both, but it is a little bit of a different process. I wanted to bring it up because I think we think about habits and that everything's the same, but it is slightly different from those things that we just feel like we can't stop doing to the things that we just feel like we can't start and sustain, you know, That's in a right. consistent way. So I just want to point that out. I do want to say one thing that I think is really important that also comes from society and sets us up to fail as part of the old narrative of changing multiple things at the same time. You know, if you think about how many things you juggle and if you're trying to change uh, behavior in a way and start to make consistent choices in a way that can stand the test of time, that means we really have to learn. We ha- Our brains have to learn. We have to learn new strategies. We have to learn new preferences and have them become a part of our identities and value system. What that suggests is that we really should, I when I work with clients, I focus on one, not even one 
behavior at a time, but one specific kind of choice point? Is it going to the gym after work? Is it snacking in front of the TV after dinner? So people also try to change too many things at the same time. So if someone wants to work on their cravings and stopping things, I would focus exclusively on that until you feel like you got that under your handle or you feel like, gosh, this is just not working after working a lot and then shift to something else. Yeah. Oh, such good advice. And I agree. I think we, when we get into that motivation bubble that you're talking about, we're like, oh, we're going to do everything. That's right. (laughs) Conquer the world. So, okay. Well, this has been fabulous. I just want to shift the conversation, talk about you personally a little bit, and then we'll have some opportunity for the listeners to uh, know where to go to find you. But do you have a morning routine? And if so, what is it? Well, um, I do. My morning routine um, changes a little bit because you know, in the summer, I'm, I'm in charge of make, helping. And that's not true. My husband helps too. But getting my son ready if he has a sporting event in the morning. But my routine is I get up. I'm going to tell you what my routine was when it's not summer and when I'm not in the middle of a book launch. I wake up and I take a shower and then I'll take my son to school, make sure he's ready. Um, And then I'll come home and I'll prepare my either tea or coffee water boil and then I'll meditate. And I worked up to 12 minutes before the book launch, which I, by the way, um, did not do a lot of meditation during the book launch. Today, I did five minutes and it's a joy choice, right? It's not the perfect 12, but it was what I could do. Um, And then I work for a few hours and my preference is to take a walk in the middle of the day. Um, And, but sometimes I do it at the end of the day and sometimes I don't do the 60 minute walk I want to do. So that's my morning. That's my morning routine. I love it. What personal habit are you most proud of and why? So I want to call it a choice instead of a habit. Thank um, you. <laughs> for the reasons we talked about, my, it's something I'm working on. It's, it has to do with parenting. I'm really trying to bring more attention and flexibility to moments of conflict with parenting. And so... Um, I'm working on it, that I'm trying to bring the same type of mindfulness that I use and teach about healthy lifestyles to my parenting. So when I am able to um, model the wonderful books that I've, parenting books that I've read and talk to my son when I'm, when he's done something that I'm frustrated by in a way that says, you know, our goal, our job is to help you um, learn how to self-regulate when it comes to this. And you know, you're going to get it. Don't worry. To be really optimistic instead of upset. So that's the thing. But I'm working on it. So, and I would say that's what I'm most proud of is my efforts to be better at that. I love it. Parenting is the hardest job I've done in my entire life. And it's so dynamic because you start with this little tiny creature that's changing every single day before your eye. So everything's changing at the same time. So you feel like you've mastered one of the stages and it changes. Yes. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. So it is, it's a constant learning situation. So I talk to my listeners, which most of them are parents about having compassion for themselves too, when it comes to parenting. Cause I think we beat ourselves up about all of these things, about our parenting, about our, you know, healthy choices, about all those things, but that we can learn new skills when it comes to parenting. It's about being deliberate and practicing and 
letting go of perfection. So it's very, very important. Michelle, you're amazing. I am so grateful for the work that you do. I'm sure my listeners have just been enthralled by this conversation and they want to learn more. So tell us where can we find you and learn more about the products and services that you offer? Sure. Well, it's just my website, which is my name, michelleseeger.com. And, you know, there's a quiz. I, I, you know, I really want people to start learning what's really getting in their way. And so there's a free quiz, a free decision trap quiz on my website too, that if people were interested in this idea that they can take. Awesome. I'm going to take it. I haven't taken it yet, but I'm definitely interested in that. Okay. Last question. Leave my listeners who, like I said, are mostly busy parents in the real world with the best place to begin if they are ready to develop healthy eating habits. The best place to begin is to understand that if you that your lack of you know perceived success to date and the things that haven't gone well has not been your fault. It's that the system that we've learned to change our eating in has really set us up to fail because it's based on passe ideas and popular conventions instead of what emerging science suggests work. So start let that off your shoulders, let go of that and start fresh knowing that the old story of behavior change has actually set you up to fail. But there's a new story in town. It's the stuff we've been talking about today. And start small and and pick joy instead of trying to do it perfectly. Ah, uh, man, that was just beautiful. Michelle Seeger, thank you so much for all the work you do. I'm so grateful that you are in this world doing this work. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here with you. Y'all, that was so good. I hope that you really enjoyed that discussion with Dr. Michelle Seeger. I am so in love with her work. We're so aligned. I'm sure I'll have her on the podcast again, and hopefully you will go read her book and find out more about the work she does. But here are my top five takeaways from this conversation. One, flexibility, not rigidity, is what is going to lead to consistency. I just made that up. I think it sounds pretty good. Flexibility, not rigidity, is what's going to lead to consistency. Two, drop the weight loss goal to achieve joy and sustainability. Y'all have heard me say this over and over and over again, but now I have a sustainability scientist who can back me up on this one. Drop the weight loss goal to achieve joy and sustainability. Three, Willpower and self-control is not the problem here. It's developing the skill of making joy-based, flexible decisions. And it is a skill that we can develop. Four, our brains are complex. Tune into your thoughts and feelings in order to understand your decision traps. And remember that acronym TRAP temptation, rebellion, accommodation, perfection. That one, that one's almost everybody gets into that perfection trap. So tune into those thoughts and feelings. Be aware that our brains are complex. Give yourself grace and compassion and figure out what are your traps. If you don't know what they are, go to Michelle Seeger's website and take the quiz. And finally, use the joy choice and 
top to make your decision. So remember, that's pause, open up to the possibilities, and play and pick your choice. We don't have to be rigid. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You have permission to do some, not just none or all. We can be flexible. We can learn these skills. We can make these choices that support our joy, our well being, our longevity, and we can stay consistent with this. So try it out. Please, I would love to know what you thought about this episode, if you're going to apply this and how it's going for you. Thank you so much, veggie lovers, for staying with us this entire conversation. I hope you loved it, and I hope that you have a very plantastic week. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.